This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the health benefits of fasting with health CEO, Greg Lindbergh. We'll learn how to help your dog beat the summer heat with integrative veterinarian, Dr. Carol Osborne. We'll find out how to get credible medical information with emergency room doctor and health CEO, Dr. Charles Rocamboli. And lastly, we'll discover whether your dog can help you heal with author Heather Lee Strom. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Older adults who play digital puzzle games have the same memory abilities as people in their 20s, a new study has shown. The study from the University of York also found that adults aged 60 and over who played digital puzzle games had a greater ability to ignore irrelevant distractions, but older adults who played strategy games did not show the same improvements in memory or concentration. It is known that as humans age, their mental abilities tend to decrease, particularly the ability to remember a number of things at a single time, known as working memory. Working memory is thought to peak between the ages of 20 and 30, before slowly declining as a person gets older. Receiving therapy for problematic social media use can be effective in improving the mental well-being of people with depression, finds a new study by UCL researchers. The research, published in the Journal of Medical Internet Research, found that social media use interventions could help adults for whom social media has become problematic or interferes with their mental health. Problematic use is when a person's preoccupation with social media results in a distraction from their primary tasks and the neglect of responsibilities in other aspects of their life. Previous research has suggested that social media can become problematic when it starts to interfere with a person's daily life and leads to poor mental well-being, including depression, anxiety, stress, and loneliness. To address these issues and improve users' mental health, social media use interventions have been developed and evaluated by researchers. Such techniques include abstaining or limiting use of social media alongside therapy-based techniques such as cognitive behavioral therapy. According to the American Chemical Society, more mock seafood options are needed because of unsustainable fishing and aquaculture practices, which can harm the environment. Now researchers have a new approach for creating desirable vegan seafood mimics that taste good while maintaining the healthful profile of real fish. They 3D print an ink made from microalgae protein and mung bean protein, and then their proof-of-concept calamari rings are air-fried into a snack. Forgive me, but that sounds disgusting. I'll be joined by Greg Lindbergh in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Is fasting part of your health and wellness routine? Lifelong Labs can give you the tools you need to start fasting. Fasting can improve your health, your mind, and your body. Join the Lifelong Labs community now and learn more about fasting. For more information, visit lifelonglabs.com.
Greg Lindbergh is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and author turned wellness advocate. He attended Yale University, where he completed his bachelor's degree in economics in 1993. He's acquired and transformed more than 100 companies that were either failing or underperforming and are now worth billions of dollars. His experiences and challenges as a business leader inspired him to author two books, Failing Early and Failing Often, How to Turn Your Adversity into an Advantage, published in 2020, and 633 Days Inside, Lessons on Life and Leadership, published in 2022. For the last few years, his mission has been focused on helping people reach their ultimate potential through wellness, longevity, and leadership. Housing all these initiatives under his new brand called Lifelong Labs. Welcome back to the show, Greg. How are you doing? Doing wonderful, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, so today we're going to talk, we touched upon this last time you were on the show, but today we're going to talk about fasting, which I know you are a bit of an expert on. So what is the purpose of fasting? The simple idea is to rejuvenate your body from head to toe. Every cell in your body is deteriorating on a certain level every time it replicates, and the idea of fasting fundamentally is to fix that deterioration that comes naturally with aging. In your estimation, when did fasting become a common practice for us human beings? That's a great question, Jamie. It's been a common practice for really hundreds of years, maybe a couple thousand years, because religious rituals have incorporated fasting into their program for a long, long time. Fasting brings you closer to a sense of inner peace, I've found, and I think religions have caught on to that and have introduced fasting into their programs. Fasting's been part of the human program for a while. Yom Kippur, I'm Jewish. So on Yom Kippur, we fast, no food or water for 24 hours. And I can tell you when you do that, I don't know if you necessarily see God, but your perspective begins to change. You know, even over 24 hours, you can sort of feel it manifest. Exactly. So fasting, I think, has become more common outside of religion, though. And why do you think that is? Well, people are looking for a way to stay healthy. They, they're maybe uh, looking for natural ways to stay healthy. We've got a lot of people trying to sell vitamins and supplements and various treatments and drugs and medical interventions. And there is, I think, a passion out there for natural holistic medicine that doesn't cost you a bunch of money that you can, everyone can do that's virtually free uh, that can rejuvenate your body completely naturally. And that's what fasting does. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the science of fasting. How does the body respond to fasting? That's a great question. The first question is how long you fast. Right. And there's three different stages of fasting. And the very first stage of fasting, really nothing happens if you fast for 12 hours or so. You have enough sugar in your system to effectively run your body on sugar for the whole 12 hours. If you go beyond 18 hours, you're starting to burn up your stores of sugar, particularly if you do a long run or you do some exercise in that 18 hours, and you move over a period of time during the fast, and certainly by 48 hours, and if you do exercise, you're moving to what they call a triglyceride metabolism. That means you're burning your body's fat instead of burning your body's sugar. And when you burn your body's fat, you have a triglyceride metabolism, a whole cascade of genes are introduced to your system that repair your body, repair your brain, help prevent all kinds of degenerative diseases. So let's focus on that first stage of fasting that you referenced. What does the body do during the beginning of a fasting period? At the beginning of a fasting period, the body will burn up its own uh, sugar in the system, and then it'll actually create 
its own sugar. So it actually burns up the sugar that's circulating in the blood, the sugar that you ate for breakfast, and then it goes through a process of gluconeogenesis, which actually creates its own sugar. So the body really wants to run on a glucose metabolism, so it burns up all of your sugar first, and then it actually creates its own sugar. So you have to persist through that gluconeogenesis to the point of ketogenesis, which is a ketosis-based, triglyceride-based metabolism. After your body stops manufacturing its own sugar and starts burning your fat, which is really the, the whole goal line of fasting is to get to that stage of triglyceride metabolism. Okay, so, so let's focus in on gluconeogenesis. Can you sort of extrapolate on, on that a bit? Well, this is where the body will take non-carbohydrate foods, so things that are not sugars like proteins, and convert them to sugar. And so the liver and the body is very capable uh, organ in your body, and it literally will take protein in that first period of time and convert it to sugar so your body can stay on a glucose metabolism. Coming off glucose is a very, it's very difficult. It's not an easy process. Your body really wants to stay on a glucose metabolism. So, you know, forgive me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. This is sort of the same effect as the keto diet, right? Where, where you're sort of shifting where your body gets its energy from? Correct. That's exactly right. Okay. So, you know, I don't know everything, but the little I do know is there are some sort of side effects that occur with ketogenesis. It's almost like people report sort of getting almost like a cold and flu-like symptoms. When you do it via fasting, do you get those same sort of side effects potentially? That's a great question. I have been doing this. I'm on my 107th week of 90-hour fast. I've been in a, an aggressive exercise routine every one of those days, and I don't experience any negative symptoms when I convert to ketogenic metabolism. When I'm burning my triglycerides after about day two, after 48 hours of no food, I've been experiencing this for 107 weeks now, you get a feeling of calm that comes over your body. You get a feeling of wellness. Uh, you don't have flu-like symptoms. You don't have any kind of negative. At that point, your stomach is adjusted to no food, and you really you feel mentally at peace, and you feel a mental clarity after that 48-hour point. Okay, so for those who uh, subscribe to the keto diet, they are eating specific foods and sort of eliminating other foods because it fosters this ketosis, okay? With fasting, do you change your diet intake when you are eating, or do you eat everything? That's a really good question, Jamie. I lately have noticed an increase in my performance during the fast. I have all these biomarkers that I measure during the fast. If I stick to a ketogenic diet during my feast, so I feast for three days a week, and during those feast days, I stick to a very high-protein diet, yeah. two, 300 grams of protein per meal, and that really helps me avoid the sugar metabolism. The whole point of fasting is to move from a sugar metabolism to a fat metabolism, and if you eat less sugar while you're feasting, it's going to be easier to make that switch. Okay, so so you are avoiding sugars then. So I presume your absolutely. I presume your diet is very much like the keto diet then, right? Exactly. And the more sugar you eat, the harder it is to make the switch. It's an addiction. You feel if I eat a lot of sugar on the last day of my feast, I feel depressed as I move off the sugar. I actually have a sugar crash. I have depression. I have cravings. I don't feel good. It's a much harder psychological journey to come off sugar. When you just don't eat sugar in the first place, it's a much easier transition. 
So I'm fascinated. You, you kind of threw out a comment earlier about exercise during the fast. So do you do an exercise regimen while you are fasting? Because I, I find that very interesting, if, if that's the case. Yes, I do. Um, I've, right now, I'm at about 120 minutes, two hours of exercise. And the first day of my fast, I do very vigorous cardio to try to burn up any sugar that's remaining in my system. And that's the key. If you measure how fast your body moves through a fat metabolism, it's going to move a lot faster if you burn that sugar up. And it's the hardest thing I do. Fasting is actually pretty easy compared to being at 80 hours of no food and doing a two-hour workout. That's actually much harder than not eating itself. But it has a compounding effect. It's an exponential effect. If you exercise at three or four days of no food, your body is really pushing hard to repair itself and rejuvenate itself. Okay, but I'm, I'm presuming that you had to build to that, right? Like how, how many years have you been fasting, Greg? No question. It's taken me three years to get here. Right. Like you, you wouldn't have dreamed of doing those types of exercises early on, right? You probably wouldn't have been capable of doing it during a fast, right? Exactly. Jamie, I was scared. If I had a morning blood draw where I had to fast in the morning, I was scared to do it. I would cheat and have breakfast anyway. I couldn't even skip breakfast. Okay. I've taken us way off track. Let's circle back to some of the science. No, no, no. I think it's interesting. I have to tell you, like, for me, I'm like one of those guys that has to have his meals. Like, I'm very into health and wellness. It's just, I know fasting is one of those few things that happens to be working for other people. For me, the real question is whether or not it's sustainable in the long run. Like, you're a person who's been doing it for years, so I find this very interesting. Not everybody can do it. My goal is to help people begin the journey. Every journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. So take a step and and move in the right direction. Every step you take towards fasting and calorie restriction is going to be beneficial to your body. Okay, so let's talk about it because, you know, we have listeners who are at various stages of their health. Okay, and I don't know this, you know, categorically, but, you know, just taking a cross section of of North Americans, some people are going to have a certain level of fitness. Some people really not at all. And in your experience, you know, if somebody is intrigued by the idea of fasting, but perhaps are not so fit to start, what would you advise them to do? How would you, you know, suggest that they see their doctor first? Like, what are some of the first steps? They have to be careful if you're on a lot of different medications, if you're having some ongoing treatments, you have to make sure that the fasting isn't going to create an interference with your medications. It it, it could have side effects if you're taking these medications while you're fasting. Interesting, by three or four days of fasting, any compound you put in your body is magnified by 5 to 10x. So you you have to coordinate this with your medications. I was on very heavy duty medications and I came off all of them. So ultimately your goal of fasting is to be prescription free. This is a one prescription to end all your other prescriptions. But you have to do it very carefully because you don't want to be taking a heavy duty dose of something three days into a fast that sends your, your body spinning. Okay, and, I, and you know, I think people should use common sense, right? Like, so for example, we discussed very briefly about sort of your concerns and fears when you first started fasting. You have to listen to your body, right? Like, even though you're trying to do this, people have to be safe. Do you have any sort of safety protocols that you would recommend for somebody who's starting fasting? The biggest one is hydration and electrolytes. You really got to be careful to keep your body hydrated. You need a lot more water when you're fasting. Food contains a lot of water, a lot of H2O content in food. So be careful. I mean, I drink a ton of water. I mean, I'm 10, 12 liters a day. And when I'm fasting, and you also have to make sure you keep your electrolytes 
uh, healthy. You have to if you if you work out in the heat. I'm down here in Florida, and you sweat a lot. You might get dehydrated, and that could be that'll reverse everything. That's really bad news if you're three days into a fast and you're you're dehydrated and your electrolytes are low. So there's ways to take you know electrolyte supplements that have potassium and sodium and these good things and magnesium in your water, and that can replenish your electrolytes. I'm glad to hear you are replacing your electrolytes. I'm I, you know like when when we were talking about sort of these fasting jags that you're doing like 90 hours i was wondering about that so i'm glad to hear that you are you know replacing your electrolytes are you also taking supplementation when you're doing these long fasts no no i don't i don't take my vitamins i just take a very handful of simple vitamins but maintaining your electrolytes is is critical but absolutely nothing else that i take so you want to be careful if you're on medications uh, and talk to your doctor what that could mean Okay. And I presume if you're exercising, if you have a personal trainer, they should be like, really everybody should know if you're going on a program like this, right? Like anybody, Absolutely. Who, anybody who's helping you and you know, you should be sort of, you, you mentioned you do, you're monitoring your biomarkers. Can you explain, you know, why that's important and which biomarkers you are specifically looking at? It's a great question. And it gives you a lot of sense of confidence to see your biomarkers going in the right direction. The number one for me is my telomere length. You know, the Hayflick limit says that we only live so long because our t- Telomeres will end in critically short lengths, and our cells will die. Right. My telomeres went from critically short to 85th percentile. They went from age 60 to age 28 over the last five years. The average length of my telomeres is now the average length of a 28-year-old. When I was at 48, my telomeres were critically short. I had the average telomere length of a 60-year-old. They were 7.1 kilobits. Today, I just had them done a couple weeks ago. They're 8.57, which is the average telomere length of a 28-year-old. That's a great biomarker. It is. So how often are you doing these blood works? How often are you looking at your biomarkers? I do my biomarkers every six months. Um, Try not to get too obsessive with them. But it's really important to have data. This is all science. You have to use the same testing lab, use the same program, the same format, so you don't have any kind of complications, and really watch your numbers get better, your cholesterol, your blood sugar, your testosterone level for men, your all these things, my, my sperm count, all these things I've been measuring and watching the numbers go in the right direction. How long is it before people would see a difference in their bodies as a result of fasting? Someone on my team did a 146-hour fast, Oof. and his blood pressure, he had heavy-duty blood pressure medicine, he had heavy-duty uh, high blood pressure, and at the end of that fast, he went in, and the high blood pressure was gone. So he had a miraculous turnaround. 146 hours is a brutal fast. I would not recommend that. Yeah. He was able to do it. So it could be fairly immediate. One, one long fast can have a dramatic impact. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, this has been wonderful, Jamie. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. That was Greg Lindbergh. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to help your dog beat the summer heat on the tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. 
you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Carol Osborne is an author and world-renowned integrative veterinarian of 25-plus years. After graduating from the Ohio State College of Veterinary Medicine, she completed a prestigious internship at the Columbus Zoo. Shortly afterwards, she launched a very successful private practice and became founder and director of the nonprofit organization, the American Pet Institute. Dr. Carroll offers traditional veterinary care for dogs and cats with a softer, natural touch. Her approach highlights the importance of nutrition and utilizing holistic avenues in combination with traditional treatments. She also is an Emmy-nominated television journalist with appearances on popular shows including Fox and Friends, The Today Show, Discovery's Animal Planet, and Good Day LA. Dr. Carroll has also been featured on USA Today, the LA Times, Ladies Home Journal, Woman's World, InStyle, PetMD, Dogs Naturally, SheKnows.com, and New York Daily News. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. So this summer, even though we're up in Toronto, it's been getting hot up here, and I know it's hot all across North America, and I have a pet who I love dearly and I want to take care of, and I thought it would be great if an expert like you could come on the show today and help us with some tips to perhaps help our pets get through a hot summer. Does that sound like a plan? Absolutely. What are the signs of heat stroke, and how do we prevent or treat heat stroke in dogs? That's a great question. And what a lot of pet owners don't realize is, uh, unlike you and I, pets can't sweat. So the only way that they can lose heat is by open mouth breathing or panting. So when, when they get overheated, the mouth will open wider, the tongue will be hanging out, the gums will turn red, they might drool excessively. Then when they get super hot, they might get a little bit wobbly. Anyhow, if that would happen, you want to bring your pet inside somewhere where there's a nice air-conditioned environment. If you have a little bathtub, you can give them a bath, cool them down, and don't forget to wet down the head. Give them something cool to drink. Call your call your vet, you know, just to be sure. If you have a dog with a flat face, you know, Boston Frenchies or Pugs, just because of the way those dogs are bred, their respiratory system and breathing is compromised, so they're much more susceptible uh, to overheating and heat stroke, you know, let's say, that, than, a Labr- than a Labrador retriever. So those are just great things to keep in mind. Okay, so Toronto, Ontario is an area which has a lot of lakes uh, and a lot of people go to the cottage on the weekend and they want to go swimming and of course they bring their dogs up. Do you have any tips for dogs and you know perhaps going to the beach or, or being in the water? Any safety tips you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. Once again, not, not all dogs can swim. Right. So before you go to the pool or the beach or the lake, you want to make sure your dog can swim. Get him or her a good fitting life jacket. And if you see that we can't swim, don't be afraid to get some swimming lessons uh, for your dog. Certainly, 
if you're at a pool or a lake, never leave your dog unattended. You know, some dogs will just go and go and go. So just like with a child, you know, after 10 or 15 minutes, they need a little rest break so they, you know, don't get overtired. If you're at, at the lake or, or even at the beach, remember that salt water is, is not an acceptable substitute for water. So you want to make sure and bring some fresh water, bring your life jacket, make sure that you have some kind of an area where shade is available, even if you bring an umbrella or some kind of a, some kind of a little tent. And uh, something else I, I would mention is what I tell my patients is if it's too hot for you to walk outside barefoot, it's too hot for your pet. So whether that's a concrete, the sand at the beach, even artificial turf, it gets really hot. Um, you can get your dog booties. There's even little topical preparations that you can apply to the foot pads to help protect them from extremes of, of heat and cold, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I make sure that we're walking in shady areas just because, you know, it can over the course of the day, the concrete can get very hot. And, you know, if the pads are unprotected, then, you know, they can burn, right? So there you go. Super hot. You know, a little, a little home remedy, you can brew a very strong solution of tea and let it cool down. Get a little paintbrush, and you can paint each one of your pet's foot pads with the tea once a day for about 14 days. And the cannons and the tea will toughen up those foot pads to help protect them from hot and cold. Uh, that's a little trick that a lot of a lot of guys that you know go mountain climbing through the rocks and whatnot. That's a little trick that they use to uh, protect their pet's foot pads. That's very helpful. Getting back to the water, so I used to teach swimming. And I know there's such a thing as, as swimmer ears. And dog's ears are very different than human ears. Is that something they experience? That's a great point. And whenever your dog is swimming, when, when he or she comes out, you know, rinse them down, if nothing more than just fresh, clean water, and make sure to dry out their ears uh, so they don't end up with ear infections. Are they more susceptible to ear infections than humans, or is it just, just common sense that we do that? You know, it, it's not that they're more or less, it, it's their ears are a little more deeply set than yours and mine, especially if you have a dog with flappy ears. Yeah. So in those cases, you know, the water sits in there and it's dark and wet and damp, which is an ideal environment for bacteria and yeast to flourish. And then you have an ear infection and they call it swimmer's ears. You know, so it's common in labs and dogs that love, that love the water. Okay. So I have a dog who has a double coat. She's an Aussie doodle. So she has the inner coat, which looks more hair-like. And then there's sort of the furry overcoat. And I know different dogs are different. Some are considered to have hair, some have fur. And during the summer, I guess the question is, do you want it cut shorter? Do you want to leave it longer? Like, is it better that they have the coat? Does that sort of protect them from the sun? Or is it better if their hair is cut shorter? You know, once again, I think it's an individual situation. Okay. If you have a dog with a very thick hair coat, certainly they're going to be more susceptible to the heat, you know, in the hot summer times than a short-coated breed would be. And in, in many cases, they can get skin infections and hot spots, etc. So you can shave your dog down so he or she looks like a lab. And despite a lot of rumors and myths online, hair coats grow back. So if you shave them down at the beginning of the summer, you know, in, in 10 or 12 weeks, most of that hair coat will be right back where it was. Okay, good to know. Is there such a thing as sunscreen for dogs? Does that exist? Absolutely. All kinds of canine sunscreen out there. The big thing is uh, stay away from zinc oxide because it, it's toxic to pets. So read the labels and make sure it's for pets. Right. So you're saying there are products that are specifically designed for pets and that's what you should go to as opposed to human 
type of sunscreens, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. So my dog has like those little chews on a monthly basis. In fact, she had hers this morning for flea and tick. Do you have any any tips for flea and tick treatment? Certainly. I think... Uh you know, it's always good to talk to your veterinarian and see what he or she might recommend. There's a variety of traditional products on the market that work quite well. And for people that are looking for less chemicals, a little, you know, more holistic yeah. uh, type of remedy, again, there are various over-the-counter preparations, uh, particularly some that contain clove, that I have found to be very effective uh, in my practice here in Ohio uh, that actually do a pretty nice job of repelling fleas and ticks, which are the enemy because of the 10 different diseases that they transmit. So I'm not sure in Canada, uh, but in the U.S., the ticks are moving across the country rapidly, yeah. uh, and, and they've become quite an issue. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're certainly having problems with diseases that are being spread by ticks up here, no question of that. So with the, the clove treatment that you're referencing, is that topical or is that something they ingest? No, these holistic or organic kind of treatments are are topical. And again, you you want to read labels uh, just because it says it's natural or it's topical. You still have to use most of those preparations quite sparingly. You know, I, I tell my patients, run your hands over your dog every morning and every evening. And if you find something that shouldn't be there, obviously remove it. Ticks have to attach for 24 to 36 hours before they're capable of transmitting one of the 10 different diseases uh, that they carry. Lyme's disease, anaplasmosis, ehrlichiosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And again, if, if you have a wooded area, a lot of grass and trees, ticks, unlike fleas, they drop down on your pet from bushes you know, and, and from trees. They don't jump up on your pet like, like a flea does. So if, if you live in a wooded area and you can trim some of that wooded grass, et cetera, back, and again, check your dog, ticks hit the head and neck area, and you ought to be pretty good. Uh, and if you're not, again, there, there are traditional products available through your veterinarian that also do a nice job. Okay, we have time for one last question, and that is, what would be your top backyard safety tip? My top tip would be, remember that when you're walking the dog in the summer, try to avoid peak heat. Back here, we recommend before 7 or 8 in the morning and after 7 or 8 in the evening. When you're walking your dog, your dog should be 4 to 6 feet ahead of you. As soon as the dog is at waist level or starts to drop behind you, the walk is over. I see a lot of people walking their dog through the little villages here. They don't even realize their dogs are four to six feet behind them. Their mouths are open, their tongues are hanging out, you know, and they're, you know, ready to take their last step. So even on a dog walk, be alert and think about the temperature. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. That was Dr. Carol Osborne. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to get good access to medical information on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Imagine a healthier and happier you. Hi there, I'm Dr. Cordial Karamantang, head of the ICU at the Ottawa Hospital. Every day, I see how important healthy habits are. And that's why I've created a course that could change your life. Do you want to lose weight, feel happier? 
I've got a few pointers to share with you. So why not take my course and give it a try? It's risk-free with a money-back guarantee. Visit 28dayreboot.co. That's 28dayreboot.co. Let's make a change together. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Charles Rockamboli is an emergency physician with 18 years of experience, in addition to being the founder and CEO of a new company called CureCrowd. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having us, Jamie. So my listeners know that this year I had some emergency surgery. I actually had a uh, perforated colon and had to go to the hospital on an emergency basis and had a two and a half uh, week stay in the hospital and then a, a long convalescence. And as a result of that, I found myself going online and sort of searching my condition and searching information about, you know, what was likely to happen post-surgery and how I, what I needed to do in order to get well, because, you know, after surgery, you may not have access to the surgeons who did the surgery. And it occurred to me, because I'm a pretty smart guy, that it's actually pretty difficult to get credible information that's accurate and reliable, particularly when it comes to medical information. Why do you think that is these days? Well, in all honesty, uh, information used to be something that was fed to physicians, physicians fed to the patients. And, and you know, now I think the question has shifted from getting any information to getting too much information. You know, the most common complaint I hear is, you know, I have so much information. One says to do X, the other says to do Y. Like, how do I sift through that? And it really is because of the ease at which uh, accessibility is to anyone's information. I think, and sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox here because we've kind of covered this in other ways on this show previously. I think the difficulty is it's hard to extrapolate fact and opinion you know, sometimes people are putting information out there that isn't really grounded in a factual basis. So it requires everybody to do a little bit of investigation. And to your point, there's just so much of it out there. Who has the time to sift through, you know, what's actually correct? Because, you know, for example, I was looking to see whether or not I could partake in recreational cannabis post-surgery. And I found two websites that purported to both be medical websites that had absolutely different opinions on the matter. And I think that's just like a tangible example of that. What do you think the hallmarks are of unreliable information? Like, so if, if people are surfing and they're trying to find the information, you know, what should be a, a point of reference to suggest that maybe the information isn't that accurate? Okay, I would definitely say there are some hallmarks for bad information people should be aware of, especially if, if they're doing their own research. Certainly low power, meaning a, a very few people. If there are very few people involved in a study, then that research has very little power. You know, it's one thing if, if a person says, you know, a cup of coffee cure their headache, it's another thing entirely, but a thousand people say the same thing. Um, the other thing you should be definitely aware of is uncontrolled variables. You know, as we move from harder sciences like physics to softer sciences like medicine or sociology, you'll find that it's the same people that are on a Mediterranean diet that are um, not smoking, that are exercising, that are taking their vitamins. So when you hear something like the Mediterranean diet is good for you for X reasons, well, have they extrapolated out those other variables? Um, so you really should be on the lookout to make sure those things are corrected for. And finally, I, I would say 
you know, source of funding. If, if you see a study that says that, you know, five minutes of sun exposure increases your risk of skin cancer 500%, and it's funded by the, you know, Sunblock Community of America, which doesn't exist, it's just fabricated for this conversation, but you should question that, all right? Take it with a grain of salt, you know, so be, be aware of those things. Yeah, I would agree with everything you've said. I would just add that, like, very few people, I think, have the background to accurately determine those issues. Like, it's, you end up going into the footnotes, right, of these studies, because they're never presented to the public as studies. They're always sort of summaries of studies or uh, that have been conducted. Correct. Uh, and so, like, you find yourself searching through the footnotes, and maybe there's a link to the original study. I don't have a science background, and I find when I go to those sites, even though I'm like, I'm like a super smart guy, I find it very difficult to glean the information from the original source materials. And it may be that those source materials say X, and the person who summarized it, maybe honestly or dishonestly, says Y. So I think that's a problem, too, that there's a disconnect between the original material and also you know, how it's being presented to the public. Also, I, I, I would, sure, and you'll even see that as a scientist. Yeah. I, honestly, like I would read through all my own papers, right? I'm one of the few people I know that still does that. And very often, you know, so you go through the process, the materials, and methods, you know, the results, and then the discussion. And very often, I, I find in the discussion the conclusions based on the research that they're looking at, based on the data. You know, I'll say like based on those numbers, I would not draw this conclusion. Right. Right. So it, it is. It is all interpreted. You know, just to your point. Okay, so we've talked about the hallmarks of something that that might be less reliable. What do you look for in terms of medical information that suggests to you that the information is reliable? Uh, Well, obviously the opposite of everything you said um, before, meaning that you would want larger people in the studies. You'd want corrected variables. You'd want that source of funding to be, you know, something non-involved in the outcome. But the single biggest quality that good research should have, and this is across um, science, whether it's physics or chemistry or, or medicine, is reproducibility, right? And that's what really separates, to me, the hard sciences like physics from the soft sciences like medicine or the softer sciences like sociology. If you get a study, and, and the concept is this, and I write down my materials and methods, and I'm a physicist, and I drop a two-pound weight from X it produces a certain amount of force, and then I give exactly what I did. I wrote it down in my materials and methods, and I give it to another physicist, and they do the exact same experiment. They should get pretty much the exact same outcome. Now, what they have found in medicine is if I get my materials and methods that I just did in my study that I just published, and I give it to another equally competent physician scientist, the ability to reproduce is about, uh, the numbers are different, but about 40 to 60%, which is abysmal. Right. Right. It is, is unacceptably low. So a lot of this research, when it comes out, look to see if it's been reproduced. When something's been reproduced multiple times from multiple groups, it is much, much, much more powerful. So I understand that you've developed sort of a solution to this problem, which, uh, as I understand it, it's almost like you're curating the information. But, but I presume there might be more to it. Do you want to tell the listeners what, you, what you've created? Sure. Well, CureCredit is basically a, a medical research engine uh, which aggregates outcomes of patients through a simple survey system and then presents them back to the general public as very easy-to-read, interpretable graphs where you start looking at head-to-head studies. Uh, the concept being that because of the poor performance of double-blinded placebo-controlled studies that we trust so much, there needs to be a different way to produce 
research. And we think that this produces good quality research without trying to overly emphasize the placebo baseline. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, research is done now uh, in the sense that you'll do, when you go to the FDA, you're going to have, let's say, your research on Prozac, and you're going to say, listen, we were, you know, 20% more effective than placebo. And they will look at it and determine whether or not, you know, you're going to get FDA approved. Now, if someone else has a different product, they're going to do theirs against the placebo also, mm-hmm. right? Now I have Selexa. Now I'm going to compare that to placebo. So you end up with these two studies, both compared to placebos, with different materials and methods that aren't really comparable, right? So with our research, because we have so many heads in the study, in a head-to-head study, people worry that there's no placebo based on it. If I just do Prozac and there's no placebo, what am I comparing to? Right. In our research, what we've done is we have so many heads in this study, right? There's an assumption made that some of them are going to work and some of them are not going to work. Right? And what we've done is, because there's 50, 60, 100, 200 different types of treatments available, the ones at the bottom become the natural placebo baseline to compare the other products to. Right? So now you're not looking versus placebo. What you're really looking for is aberrations in statistical or statistically significant aberrations off of this baseline, as opposed to making that baseline have to be a placebo. But who determines the baselines, yeah. right? Like with placebo, the notion is it's versus somebody who's not taking whatever treatment it is, right? So it's it's taking it versus not taking it. But it's you're not, no, you're taking you're taking something that does nothing, right? It's not that you're not taking anything; you're taking something that does nothing. Yes. Okay, so I understand you you could see the variables between taking something that does nothing and and you know the supposed therapy. But what I understand you're saying is you're actually comparing therapies. But that presupposes but that presupposes that those therapies have somehow been otherwise vetted as being credible, or are you saying that if they're already FDA approved, we can take that for granted? No, what I'm saying is it's irrelevant, right? Especially when you really consider the broader questions that both physicians and patients are asking themselves when they decide whether or not they want to take a treatment. You're not saying, hey, should I take a Selexa or should I take a placebo? You're saying... Should I take Selexa or should I take Prozac or should I take St. John's work? What does yoga work? Right. Right? So the more important question is the head-to-head question. And to your point about a placebo is if your theory is that some of these medicines are, are going to be ineffective, I mean, people can try anything for anything. There's going to be a natural baseline of non-efficacy that is going to develop, Right. So what I'm saying is across these 50, 100 treatments, some of them are not going to work really at all or be just placebo. Right. And that would be a baseline that you can compare other things to while it answers the more pertinent questions to the end user, which is which ones work in respect to the others. Last question real quick. Uh, If people want to uh, try your search engine, where should they go? They can go to curecrowd.com. It's been public resource for, you know, years now. We've done pilot studies on back pain diabetes, COVID, we had a small pilot study done. And um, we really feel like it could be utilized with a lot of orphan diseases, uh, which are basically these small diseases where there is not a lot of money to do quality research. So if you have a disease advocacy group and you have 5,000, 10,000 people that are involved in it, they could get quality research done for free by just plugging in their personal information into this site and seeing what the numbers show. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Charles uh, Rocamboli. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how your dog can help you heal on the tonic. Join the Big Carrot for their Courtyard Market Sunday, September 17th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Shop local organic vendors and enjoy green roof activities and drop-in garden workshops. There's barbecue, live music, big deals, and a kid's craft zone. Fun for the whole family. And admission is free. Stop by 348 Danforth Avenue. The Big Carrot, your one-stop shop for everything health and wellness. Welcome back to The Tonic. Your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Heather Lee Strom is the author of the critically acclaimed book, Canine Spirit Guides. She discusses in detail our unique connection with dogs and why they are truly our best friends. Uh, Welcome to the show, Heather. How are you? I'm great today. Thank you, Jamie. Your first book was released earlier this year. What motivated you to write it? Well, I didn't even know I was going to write a book. I had a number of psychics throughout my life tell me that I was supposed to write a book, and I just thought that was BS. You know, I'm not a writer. That's not my thing. But I had a particular encounter with a psychic in 2022, the very beginning of the year, that said, you're writing a book, and it's going to be done by the end of the year, and it's going to be a number one bestseller. And I'm like, what? So I kind of paid attention to that. But I didn't know what I was going to write about. I've had so many stories in my life that would have made a great book. And I've always been a dog person. So I still didn't know what I was going to write about. But as I started to meditate, I started to get more and more clues in my meditations and also in my dreams. And one dream particularly was with my own spirit guides that literally told me what the title of the book was, which is Canine Spirit Guides. So I wrote it down in the middle of the night. Woke up the next morning and I'm like, oh, there it is. That's what I'm writing about. So that's what motivated me to write the book is because it was kind of a calling high above. It wasn't something that I sat down with pen and paper and said, I'm going to write a book about X, Y, and Z. I had no idea what this book was going to be about. You know, dogs are one thing, but this book went in a totally different direction. It's not just about dogs. It's about the healing of humanity through our dogs. So that's the short story of how I came about the book. <laughs> okay, so like I'm a dog person, although I wasn't for most of my life. I didn't have pets, but we, you know, I, I have a an Aussie Doodle who who is uh, I consider a close personal friend. But I would imagine yeah. I would imagine your book may have pissed off some of the cat owners. I like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I could be wrong. So so what is a canine spirit guide? What do you mean by that? Well, canine spirit guides are these angelic beings that connect with us through our dogs. So they aren't actually the spirit of our dogs. They are much more advanced and divine than that, if you can imagine. Like, we already think that our dogs are angels, right? They obviously have special powers for us. But these are entities that are even more magnificent than the the spirit of our dogs. They're actually multi-dimensional beings. They are the version of dogs and other realms, if you can imagine that. It's huge. This is brand new information that we've never known before. It's blowing people out of the water. It blew me away because I didn't understand it until I started to write the book. And I still, even after I wrote the book, I was still learning about it. 
Yeah, so I, when you talk about multi-dimensional, like, are we talking like a Marvel-like multiverse of, of dogs on other celestial planes? Is that what you're getting at? Yes, yes, exactly what I'm saying. And that's why they're so powerful, uh-huh. because they're here to help humanity heal. Because we know, we know we're in, we're in bad shape right now. Humanity really needs to heal. And that's why they've come forward at this very specific moment. They've always been with us but they've never needed to be known about before. But now they want to take a more active role in helping humanity to heal. And so that's why the book just sort of burped out of me. Uh-huh. I, didn't, I didn't have to write it. It was a completely channeled book and how a demonstration and how they are present in our lives and how they are here to help us heal. Are they getting the residuals from the book or are you keeping it? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, they <laughs> They're not, they're not engaged in any of that human stuff. <laughs> Lucky for you. So how, yeah. did you, how did you become acquainted with something so obscure? Well, just through the meditation. I had to learn to meditate. And as I learned to meditate, then they started to work with me and they started to heal me through their healing tools that they have to offer us. And as I became more healed, I could connect with them more easily. And they started to just download this information through my sessions and also through my dreams. But as I wrote the book, I learned about them. I learned who they are, why they're here. It was never anything that I understood before or even had an inkling was happening behind the scenes with all of my dogs that have been in my life. So it, it sort of evolved as I evolved through the process. What sort of healing are you talking about? Because like from my perspective... I think dogs are great socializers, right? Like walking your dog allows you to meet other people with dogs. They're, you know, they, I believe they are intuitive. And if you're lonely or if you're isolated, having a dog and something to care for can sort of help you perhaps with mental health issues. Certainly like walking my dog, which is an active dog, helps me with movement and mobility because I need to get up from behind the desk, you know, a couple times a day and walk my dog. And that's good for me. So I think of dogs of healing, yeah. healing like that, which I think is tangible. Forgive me, because yeah. sometimes I play devil's advocate here. I'm trying to be polite. What do you mean by healing? Yeah. Is, is, is it more than that? Yes, much more than that. So what you're referring to is the actual spirit of the dog that's helping you. That's just being there for you and providing opportunities for you, support for you. That's that's what we consider the unconditional love, the angelic part of the dog. But these entities, are they dig deeper. They're looking to heal you from ancestral patterns, energetic blocks, pain patterns that reside within your body that you've carried forward from other lifetimes. I mean, we're digging deep here. So they're much more than what we've ever understood our dogs to provide us with. Okay, so you say your background is not in, in writing. What, what is your background? Well, I have been a physical therapist for over 30 years now. I am fully entrenched in physical medicine. I'm also a massage therapist. I also have training in functional medicine. So I've spent my entire life healing the physical body, the muscles, the bones, the ability to walk, you know, take care of ourselves. And so this is really goes against the grain of what I've always believed my entire life. I've known about spirituality, but it was a scary thing for me. I didn't know, I didn't trust it. I didn't know how it fit into the physical body. I wasn't sure I wanted to make that leap because I'm a very scientific kind of person. So this is very different for me. I had to really step out of my comfort zone 
to embrace what the teaching they have to offer and the healing they have to offer. But what's so fascinating now is that all my patients who've been coming to me with physical issues, a lot of them couldn't be fixed because they went deeper than that. They went deeper than the physical body. They were more spiritual issues that needed to be dealt with that were coming through from another life or even from family history that they had just walked into and agreed to, and they had to heal it. So now I have a new tool in my toolbox to help these people completely resolve, the dogs call them tags, that keep them from being the full version of them that they're supposed to be here on earth. So it it occurs to me that, you know, really nobody could write a book like this unless sort of they had a personal experience. So I'm I'm guessing that from your perspective, you had these uh, spirit guides help you through a situation. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yes, yes, yes. So my book is full of examples. Um, But while we're on the medical topic, and I know that a lot of your viewers have medical interests, you know, a lot of you've had a lot of topics around medical and health and wellness. So one of the most powerful guides in my book is actually associated with my current dog, who is a corgi. She's absolutely adorable. She's all over my social media. She's a she's a, a specific gift that was supposed to be here right here in this moment. But she's also been with me two other times in my life. And when I looked back on it, I only connected these dots recently, I want you to know. Even though I wrote the book last year, I only recently connected these dots. Every time this dog was in my life, I had a major health issue. The first time I had her, she was a a border, a a Sheltie named Mo, and I had to recover from a brain tumor. And this brain tumor was designed as sort of an optional exit point where I met with my guides during brain surgery, and they explained to me that I needed to be here a bit longer, because this was over 20 years ago, before I would be able to activate my purpose for being here. And they asked me if I wanted to stay or if I wanted to go home. <laughs> so this guide is, is pivotal in, as far as bringing through very high-frequency, um, interdimensional knowledge about yourself and your journey. The second time I had this dog, it was a Border Collie, and this Border Collie brought with this dog a very horrible case of Epstein-Barr virus and cytomegalovirus. I could not work. I couldn't go outside. I was very, very sick. But the whole point of this illness was to make me stop my life and just hold. I was in a holding pattern, just stop and stay. I was waiting for a very important connection to happen. Once that connection happened, I moved forward on my path, completely healed. And now, during the dog that I have now, um, Gigi, she was here to bring forward this part of me, this channeling part, the spiritual part, because I came, I discovered I was suffering from mold illness, mold sickness. Hmm. So once I identified the fact that I needed to move on in my life, change my course, then I healed from the mold sickness. So there's a very distinct connection here with the medical illnesses and how these guys are working with us. Fantastic. Very interesting. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Greg Lindbergh, Dr. Carol Osborne, Dr. Charles Rocamboli, and Heather Lee Strom. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. 
To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The July-August issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.